the title of the seminar, Learning to Grasp the Whole Drama of Scripture. Um, My assumption is, if you're here, that you already affirm the idea that the Bible presents one continuous storyline from Genesis to Revelation. I'm assuming that you're on board with that uh, idea, and and I'm not going to try and defend that today. I'm also assuming that you believe that in some measure, a consideration of the complete storyline of the Bible should factor into your teaching ministry. That at some level, as you seek to teach and communicate a particular text, you should be asking the question, how does my text fit into the whole drama of Scripture? The question I want to tackle today is, how do we do that faithfully? How do we do that more accurately? How do we get our arms around the whole drama and communicate it in a way that honors the text? The reason we need to ask that question is because in recent years, there has been something of a resurgence in what we might call biblical theology, and we welcome that. We celebrate that. Uh, At the same time, with that resurgence has come many abuses of biblical theology. We've all seen examples of texts being connected that were never intended to be connected, or texts being connected in an incorrect manner. Uh, We've all heard the sermon preached where David is in fact Christ, and Goliath is your sin. And by throwing those stones, we see the cross. Uh, It was maybe you that preached that sermon. (laughs) And that's okay. There is forgiveness (laughs) at the actual cross. (laughs) Um, Recently, I heard an argument for female preachers in the church that was being made from a biblical theological perspective. Uh, The drama of Scripture was being traced out from one creation to the new creation, and the way in which that storyline was presented allowed for and argued for the role of female preachers. And we could go on and on. There are many examples where the whole drama of Scripture is not being handled faithfully, and so it is our responsibility to think through how to do a better job. How is it these issues come about? I would say there are at least two problems at a methodological level. One concerns what I call proof texting. Uh, If you've done any work in the field of biblical theology, you'll have heard the term intertextuality or uh, intertextual studies. And what we mean when we say that is essentially the idea of connecting two texts Um, often people will note that the same word here is being used over here, and by virtue of that correspondence, the texts connect. Or maybe it's more than a word, maybe a collocation of words and verbs, maybe even presented in the same order in a later text, and thereby the two texts are intended to connect. And we read the later in light of the earlier. And, And I want to be clear, proof texting is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, and we want our exegesis to be grounded in the text. Proof texting is good. The problem is, all too often, people think of proof texting as the only step 
in our biblical theological efforts. Uh, That's all they do. I would encourage you to think of proof texting as we think of the, 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 the bride and the groom on top of the wedding cake. They're holding hands. We've connected the texts, but they're not the cake. They're the last step, and there's a whole lot of stuff to eat before you can get to the bride and the groom on the top. There's a lot of work to be done before we can do the final step of connecting the two texts. So that's one issue. Another one, somewhat closely related, is that all too often people only operate on the level of proof texting, failing to realize that the Bible gives us an incredibly complicated story. It's it's wonderfully complicated. We celebrate the complexity of the drama of Scripture. It's not by any means linear. It's not by any means simple. Uh, There are many twists and turns. There are many nuances And what that means is we have to allow for degrees of continuity to exist beyond the level of the word or the sentence. The way in which the Bible is stitched together and the way in which we see these degrees of continuity often is beyond simply a repetition of a word or a collection of words. So as we look at scripture, we see things such as patterns and types and paradigms and trajectories, all of them operating above the sentence level, and we need to know how to affirm those degrees of continuity, and in that case, proof texting is not necessarily going to work. So those are two prevalent issues that I've noticed as people try and tell the whole drama of scripture, what would be a better way forward? How can we move forward? Uh, We can move forward, first of all, by considering the question of center, the mitter, the the thing that holds it all together. Again, if you've done any work in, in biblical theology, you'll know that this is the question that plagues this field of study. Uh, Is there a center? And if there is a center, what is it? And traditionally, people have sought to answer the question of the center with a thematic response. So the center that holds all of Scripture together is, fill in the blank with a theme, uh, kingdom, covenant, the presence of God, and on and on it goes. It's actually very, very difficult to argue for one thematic center to all of Scripture, And you get the sense of that when you read through all of these biblical theologies. If you find one that argues for one singular idea upon which all of Scripture hangs, what you notice is that there are corners of the narrative where the author of that biblical theology seems to be just trying to press it through a hole that doesn't quite fit. And it becomes unpersuasive at certain portions. And again, that is due to the rich complexity of the story that we have. More recently, some have suggested not a thematic center, but more of a conceptual center, and specifically the idea of plot, plot, or narrative continuity. The idea being that rather than saying one theme defines the whole storyline, allowing for many themes to be working together within one cohesive plot structure from beginning to end. What is a plot? Uh, Aristotle gave us our very first definition in his poetics. And the definition is that a story that 
espouses a plot is one that has a beginning, a middle, and then and an end. And that's it. Very, very simple. Uh, beginning being an episode which does not necessitate anything before it, but that demands something to come after it. The middle being something that demands something before and after, and the end being something that demands something to have come before, but does not necessitate anything to come afterwards. And that's it. And, And many have since sought to define plot in a more nuanced way and expand upon that, but it is widely agreed that that is the foundation definition and very few have dared to depart from it. And I would affirm that to you. It's a good definition of what a plot is, a story that has a beginning, middle, and an end. So what we can do is come to the scriptures thinking of the storyline of scripture as one continuous plot structure that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when we take that approach all of a sudden, grasping the whole drama of Scripture together becomes an easier affair. Or we can do it more faithfully. And so in the time that we have today, all I want to do is take you through how we might think about a text with reference to its beginning, its middle, and its end. The goal being that we would understand better how our text for that Sunday fits into the whole drama of Scripture. Beginning with the beginning. Um, My wife put together the handout that you have before you. I am as incompetent as somebody can be in 2020 with computers. I just about know how to send an email. And so last night, I was with some friends in my office, and I said, I, I just need an ark. That's all I need, and I don't know how to do it. So a friend put the ark on the page for me, and, and I went home, and I said, Laura, can you help me build up the ark? And uh, she did a wonderful job, and she added these little icons in accordance with the comments I'd written. And in that first icon, the beginning, you see a little picture of the globe, because the question that we're asking here is, what is the narrative world in which my text is found? What is the narrative world in which my text is found? We're thinking through, as it were, the pretext. What has established a world of understanding that my text is then situated in? And you can ask about the narrative world on two levels, external and internal. External being simply the the cultural milieu in which the text is located, What is the cultural context that feeds into my text and gives it understanding? Internal being what are the scriptural precedent that is feeding into my text? Um, Some examples, thinking through external influences on the narrative world. You're preaching through the book of Acts, encouraging your people to be good church members, and then you get to Acts 21. (laughs) And now you don't know what to do. And this is where so many pastors tap out and they say, we're done with Acts, we're actually moving on. Please don't ask me any questions. (laughs) Uh, We get one trial scene after another from Paul. He's on trial continuously. And then we get this long shipwreck narrative and we don't know what to do with it. And for the pastor that does dare to preach it, he might say something like, so make sure that you're brave too, just like Paul was. When you're shipwrecked, be like him which I don't think is the point of the narrative. A little bit of study in the narrative world in which we find ourselves opens up the text. 
The narrative world being one in which divine retribution is affirmed. If you've done something bad, the gods are going to get you. Religious pollution is affirmed. If you associate with somebody that's done something bad, you're now susceptible to their punishment. And thirdly and simply, we're living in an age where sea travel is really, really dangerous. So Paul goes to sea, trial after trial after trial, has not yet been found guilty. The narrative question being asked is, is he guilty or not? He then appeals to Caesar. He he goes off to see Caesar. He's now on the ship and the storms come. Everybody on board is susceptible to the shipwreck. And as you read this long narrative, you see this unfolding drama. The rhetorical punchline at the end is Luke saying, everyone on board survived. Within the cultural milieu, that is Luke's way of saying, this man is innocent. And with his innocence comes a validation of his message. The gospel is doing what it said it would do. Hence, we go to Acts 28. What do we not find in Acts 28? We don't find Paul's trial before Caesar. No need. People will say, well, Luke didn't have the information needed, or maybe there was part of his parchment that was lost, or maybe there's a literary purpose to the absence of the final trial, because the shipwreck has declared him to be innocent. And instead, what we find is him preaching with relative freedom, albeit under house arrest, the gospel that has now got to the ends of the earth. And that's just through a little bit of consideration as to the cultural milieu in which we find that narrative. Internally, what we're asking here is, is what has come before within the confines of Scripture? How is Scripture informing our text? And this, again, would be an area where we're prone to making bad connections. Uh, so an example, Matthew 2. Familiar narrative, and because it's familiar, we often miss the strange nature of what's going on. A baby's born, all of a sudden a star appears, and then some men from a foreign land, men of authority in that foreign land, come and give this baby a gift. And we're familiar with the narrative, so we miss just how strange this is. And you'll go to the commentators, and they'll say, well, in an effort to try and proof text and connect this episode with the narrative world, as determined by Scripture... Often, they'll take you back to Numbers 24. Why? Because there, there's a prophecy through the mouth of Balaam that a star will come out of Israel. So you see the eagerness to connect the dots. Star equals star. The problem being, there is not that much of a thematic correspondence between Matthew and Numbers. This is the wedding cake underneath the the bride and the groom. Think about the thematic correspondence. We can proof text when there is thematic alignment. And Numbers doesn't show all that much of a thematic correspondence with Matthew. If, by contrast, we know the pre-narrative, we've read our Bibles, and we know that in Isaiah, particularly 40 through 66, we find the predominant theme of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And we know that Matthew is all about God's kingdom as represented in his king, Then in Isaiah 60, we find a great light shining. And when that light shines, Israel receives her salvation. And when she receives her salvation, what happens? Kings come from foreign lands bearing gifts of gold and frankincense. And now with a strong thematic correspondence, we can start to proof text. And it seems like what Matthew is saying is, 
this Israelite is here to lead the nation of Israel to her salvation. And that's just by considering what comes before your text, the pretext, both external and internal. The principle upon which we're leaning here is that the meaning of every text is informed by both the external and internal pretext. You have to know the narrative world in which your text is set. Often, the first misstep within biblical theological efforts is simply to fail to know the narrative world, to fail to know the pretext. But that's only part of our work done. We then move on to the second stage, the middle, or our text. And so in the ark, you see that we have a little book there, and that's meant to represent the text that you're concerned to preach, to teach to the church, and you want to show them how it fits into the the grand narrative of Scripture. And the question you need to be asking here is, how does my text engage with and or deviate from the paradigms that have been established in the narrative world. So it assumes that you've done step one. You have to have done step one well. You have to understand what those thematic emphases are. And as you come to your text, what you're now doing is saying, how does my text engage with those paradigms, pick them up, make use of them, and importantly, deviate from them? Because it is often the case that in deviation, we find the meaning, we find the significance. So example, Daniel 7, Abner talked about this yesterday in his sermon, did a wonderful job. We understand Daniel 7 is the theological center of the book where the Son of Man is presented to us. What people miss is the details at the very beginning of the narrative where we read of a wind hovering over the water. Now that's significant. There's a spirit over the water that seems to form instantly some kind of correspondence with the narrative world in which we find Daniel 7. It's picking up on something that has come before. You read on and now you see that there are beasts coming up out of the water. Again, it seems like Daniel is picking up on paradigms that have been established for us. And you'll miss this if you don't hit pause to ask a good question of the text. I'll often say to my students, I think one of the major issues in biblical studies today, and particularly biblical theology, is that we simply aren't asking good questions of the text. We're living in an age where we're being trained not to ask questions anymore, because the information is given to us nonstop, continuously. Information is not helping us really to think deeply about anything. And so over time, we're just not even asking questions. And part of the challenge for you as the interpreter is to constantly hit pause and ask a good question of the text. A good question to ask of Daniel 7 verses 1 through 2 is why is it that these human kings are being presented to us as beasts? Why on earth are they not just being shown to us for what they are, human kings? There's a reason why we're seeing them as beasts coming up out of the water. And if we're thinking in terms of the holistic picture and the paradigms that have been established, namely in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we understand a strong creation emphasis to Daniel chapter 7. And so then we read on, and now what we're looking for, having understood how Daniel 7 is picking up on some previously established paradigms, now we're looking for wherein there might be some deviation from those paradigms. 
And sure enough, we see immediately as we go on in the chapter that there is deviation. The paradigm in Genesis 3 said, a beast rises up, usurps, its, uh, usurps the position of the, of the man and gains an authority that does not belong to it. Daniel 7 says, four beasts rising up, striving for an authority that does not rightly belong to them, and they all fail. Now the paradigm just got altered. And then we read on and say, oh, but there is a son of man, there is an offspring of Adam who succeeds, who is gifted the authority and now rules over the whole world like the first Adam should have but failed to. Now, that changes the way that you preach Daniel 7. You're not simply going to stand up there and say, the one like the Son of Man is better than these four human kings, which is true. We understand that within the drama of Scripture, what we're seeing here is a microcosm of salvation history. We're seeing that Daniel 7 is being presented to us as a Genesis 3 take 2, but this time man wins. It also prompts you to start asking some more good questions about the text. The most obvious question is, why is it that this one, this son of man, can win, whereas all previous sons of men failed? And the answer is because he is also God, because he stands face to face with the Ancient of Days. He receives authority. He doesn't grasp for it like the arrogant human kings, and so on and so forth. As a point of encouragement, if this sounds like a difficult way to think, it is actually the way in which we already think when we read anything. So what we're doing here is we're striving for the holistic thought. And though you may not realize it, when you read anything, your brain is always trying to put together the bigger picture. It's always reading each chapter of every book in light of the chapters you've already read and trying to interpret that chapter in light of what you already know. That's how reading works. And meaning comes out of narrative, especially when we understand paradigms that have been established being picked up and then altered. So this is intuitive to all of us, even if we don't realize it. It does form an exhortation, and that is that you have to read the text. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not joking. You have to read the text. I know that the pastorate is busy, and there are many pressures on the pastor in addition to putting together a, a good sermon that's going to feed the sheep. But there is no escaping the fact that in order to understand where your text fits in and how it fits in, you have to know that text inside out, back to front. And what I mean there specifically is not only the text you're preaching that Sunday. So you're in Philippians. Here's my pericope. I'm going to read and read and read and read this paragraph not quite. Actually, you need to be reading Philippians over and over and over again. You have to get to the point where you understand the way Paul is thinking within this letter. And it's only when you get the holistic thought of the letter that you start to see how he's picking up on previous paradigms and changing them to serve his purpose within the pericope you're happen you, you happen to preach that Sunday. So that the burden is on us to be reading over and over till we get to the point where we just know it intuitively. It's now inside us and we get how Paul thinks when he writes to the Philippians. I preached a, a message earlier in the week in 1 John. When I preached through 1 John, I was reading that letter over and over again 
so as to understand what is John's holistic thought. I I understand the text I'm preaching this Sunday, but what I'm concerned with is what is the message of this book in one sentence? And when it comes to this issue or this issue, how is John going to deal with it in this letter? And then when you do that, and it doesn't come easily, it does take time, when you do that, you can start to pick up and see the paradigms that he's utilizing from earlier portions of Scripture. Now you understand how it is and why it is John is doing what he says. So in this case, when you get that holistic thought, you start to see how he picks up on his theology in the gospel. You go back to the gospel, you start to see the same ideas being used as he's used later on in 1 John. In the gospel, you start to see how he's picking up there on motifs from Isaiah and going further back to Genesis, thinking particularly about the motif of light and darkness. And when you've got that storyline in place, now you can start to see what John is doing in 1 John. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Isaiah says, yes, but there is coming another light pushing us towards the new creation. John says the light is here, speaking about Jesus. He is the one that's going to take us to that new creation. And then John curiously picks up on those paradigms and gives it the the tiniest of shifts. And he says, Jesus has ascended, no longer bodily with us, and yet the light is already shining. And you won't see the significance of that statement until you've put together the paradigms going all the way back to Genesis. And that is just one clue that starts to be evident all throughout the letter that what John is saying is Jesus is no longer here and it is now on the church to carry on the ministry of pointing people towards the new creation. There is this strong emphasis in 1 John of saying the church has it now. You guys have it. Jesus is no longer with us. I'm not going to be here very long, and it's now on you. And he starts to give them the responsibility within the context of assuring them of who they are in Christ. But you don't get there quickly. It comes from reading the text over and over again. And I think the misstep here is that we often simply undervalue the act of reading and just how difficult and arduous it can be to get your mind into the text and to know it inside out, back to front. Finally, the last stage in grasping the whole drama is to consider the end point. And I'm not here talking about that which comes after your text in the Bible. In fact, I want to be careful not to point you in that direction because we want to honor the doctrine of progressive revelation, We understand that subsequent texts don't determine the meaning for our text, that our text means what our text says in its original context, and subsequent texts can't alter that meaning. So what do we mean by the end then? We mean, just as Aristotle meant as well, that every good story seeks in some way to impress itself on your world. Every good story seeks in some way to reorient your narrative world. We believe this already. It wouldn't be uncommon for me to say to you, you've got to watch this movie, it will change your life. 
You have to read this book. Your life will never be the same again. What I'm saying is it's going to reorient your world. How much more so should we affirm that of the Bible? Each and every Sunday, you've got to read this text because it's going to change your life. Evidence, further evidence that we believe this, is simply the fact that we make application in our sermons. We believe that this text is meant to be doing something in in the way we live our lives, reorienting the way we live our lives. So we're not the same now that we've read it. And the hermeneutical principle that we readily affirm is that there is one right interpretation, many applications. One interpretation, one meaning, many valid applications. Yes and amen. I affirm that. But I just want to challenge you to think about the facts that where there is one right interpretation, there is a subset of better applications. Not all applications are equal. Some applications may be valid, but they may not be the manner in which the author of the text sought to impress his text upon your world. He was, meant to, he was trying to do something different. Example, going back to Acts, preaching through Acts, what do you see? Well, one thing that you see is the bravery of the apostles. You see these guys being bold in the face of persecution, and they just keep preaching the gospel. And so you say to your congregation, be bold also. When you preach the gospel, make sure you're bold like Peter, which is not invalid. That's a valid point of application. I don't think it was the particular thing Luke was trying to impress upon you so as to change your world. So then how do we get to that? Two steps, what I call augmentation and invitation. Augmentation is noting within the text the particular points of accent or emphases. Uh, We see this to be true in, in all art forms. You look at a painting, and it may be that a particular painter, when he painted a person, would augment a feature of that person beyond that which would be considered as a normal representation of that part, because that's what he wants to impress upon you. And it's also true in, in the text. We see things being accented, augmented beyond that which might be considered a normal representation of them. So when you read through the book of Acts, what you see is that over and over and over again, Luke draws attention to the community of believers coming together. What do they do when they get together? They eat bread, they sing hymns, they pray, and they sit under the teaching of God's word. And he emphasizes that time and time again. In fact, he places that at key literary points within the narrative. Remember, Luke has options. There are things that he's choosing not to include in his historical account. There are other things that he's choosing to include and to include them frequently. And so the believers coming together and doing church together becomes a point of augmentation within Acts. And it would seem that what Luke is trying to do is to impress upon you, the reader, the necessity to do likewise. Now, combine that with the purpose statement of Acts, the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth, and you've now got a sermon that's going to preach. 
We stand here this Sunday morning as those who bear the responsibility to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. How? By coming together, by praying, by breaking bread, by singing praises to God, and by sitting under the teaching of God's word. And as you follow in that simple act of obedience, trust that the Lord will use us so that his gospel will be made known the whole world over. That's augmentation. Uh, Another example, Genesis. What on earth do we do with Genesis? Well, you look for points of augmentation. How is this book seeking to impress itself on your world? Answer, one thing you notice is this recurrence of the word seed over and over and over again. Disproportionately so. Used some 59 times in the Genesis narrative compared with 170 in the rest of the Old Testament. So it's off the charts in Genesis, seed, 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 seed. Moses wants us to pick up something about this seed. What does he want to pick up? The search for the seed that began in Genesis chapter 3. The means by which we're going to make all things right is through this seed that will crush the head of the serpent. And now we're on a search. You combine that with that Toledot formula that's narrowing the narrative down to one family and the question that we keep asking, which is the question that he wants us to ask, is, is this the seed? Where is the seed? That changes your preaching of Genesis. You're not going to stand there on a Sunday morning now and say, be like Abraham here. Don't be like Abraham here. Okay, well, last week you told me to be like him and now you're saying don't be like him. You see how it guards against moralistic preaching of Old Testament narrative. Because Moses is not giving us the narrative of Abraham primarily as an ethical example, positive or negative. He's giving us the the Abraham narrative to tell us something about the search for the seed. And what we understand in the privileged position in which we stand with the whole counsel of God available to us, knowing how it ends with Jesus Christ on the throne, and we have that liberty within our sermon to go beyond the text and say, and guess what happens after this? From this family going down to 12 tribes comes the tribe of Judah, from whom comes David, from whom comes Christ, who we know to be the seed, and he will one day appear and crush the head of the serpent... Now you're putting the whole thing within the drama of scripture and the question becomes, are you on board or not? Do you align yourself with God's plan, understanding the preeminence and the importance of the seed? Just thinking through the augmentation of the text. Another way in which we understand the the manner in which the text is seeking to impress itself on our world is thinking through what I call invitation. There are throughout the narrative, the whole drama of scripture, perceived points of discontinuity. There are what would be perceived as points of discontinuity, and oftentimes they form an invitation to us. So endings are a good example. Jonah ends with a question. No answer given. That's a bad way to end a story. Unless there is a rhetorical force to it. And more than a few have concluded it ends with a question because God wants you to give an answer. Are you going to close your heart and be a hard-hearted Israelite like Jonah was? Or will you open your heart up to the nations, even your enemies? 
Will you be willing to accept that God's mercy can go to anyone, even those whom you don't like? It's an invitation, and with that invitation, we see how Jonah is seeking to impress itself on our world and change the way we live. Similar with the Gospel of Mark, it ends abruptly. If we take the shorter ending to be the true ending, has it ever occurred to you that this whole narrative presenting the glory of Jesus Christ has no resurrected Christ? We don't see the resurrected Christ in Mark. I mean, talk about an anticlimactic ending. Unless we understand the abrupt nature to form something of an invitation to us. Mark knew exactly what he was doing. And in a gospel which majors so much on the theme of discipleship, as he ends abruptly, he is forcing you to create the ending in your world. He is forcing you to write the ending of that gospel in your world. Meaning, you now become a disciple. Understand this story and get on board and follow this man. Or in the middle of a book, going again back to Genesis chapter 38, Judah and Tamar. Perhaps the most marked point of discontinuity in the whole Old Testament. Joseph goes down to Egypt. Next episode, Joseph in Egypt. Not at all. Judah with his daughter-in-law, doing really strange things, and then we'll go back to Joseph. So what on earth is going on here? Rather than affirming it as some kind of late addition that has no place in the narrative, maybe it's a point of invitation. An invitation to consider, to dwell upon, to think about this particular son in the midst of the drama concerning Joseph. Here is the son who has not yet disqualified himself to be the next in line. Simeon, Levi, Reuben, all disqualified by their earlier activities. Judah's still in line. He starts on a bad note. But Genesis 38 is not there to vilify Judah. In fact, if we read the chapter properly, we see something of a maturation of this guy. So that by the end, when he is, he is cornered, he can't back out, he says... It was. It was my mistake. She is more righteous than I am. And so through this process of growth, we're now left with a positive affirmation of Judah. Why is that necessary? Because later on in the narrative, at the climax point, when the brothers are in their deepest trouble before Joseph, whom they don't recognize, it is Judah that steps forth and gives the speech that gives the speech that breaks Joseph's heart so that he reveals himself, brings his family in, which leads to the salvation of Israel. So Moses wants us to know about Judah, and he does that by issuing an invitation. And that then impresses itself on our world and our reading of the text. There's more that we could say. Time is running short. To summarize, in order to get our arms around the whole drama of Scripture and read it more faithfully... We have to think of each and every text in terms of its narrative world. What is it that has been established prior to this text? We have to think about the text in terms of its holistic thought. What is the message of this text? How does it pick up on the paradigms of my narrative world and change them? And then we have to think about the end. How is this text seeking to impress itself upon me, the reader, and reorient my world? 
And when we think about each and every text according to its plot structure, we can move towards a more faithful understanding of the grand narrative of Scripture. Let's pray now to close. Father, we are grateful that you've given us one unified story from Genesis to Revelation. We affirm it to be that, and we desire to understand it. We desire to be those who handle the word of God accurately, faithfully. We want to understand the drama of Scripture and to communicate that drama, all of its riches, to your people. So please help us to think well, to be studious, to work hard to understand the diligence that is required to interpret any text. And please lead us in that direction so that we could tell of your glories as they're shown from Genesis through to Revelation. We commit ourselves and our ministries to you in Christ's name. Amen.